The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we get starting our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are indeed ready, that we are prepared through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we admit, acknowledge our sins to God the Father in the privacy of our priesthood, Scripture says that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wrongdoing. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study God's Word, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the privilege that we have in this country to have the freedoms that we do, to have the freedom to assemble, to worship you, the freedom to study your word, and the freedom to freely proclaim it. As there are many forces in this country, in this nation, people of power, people of persuasion, people in positions of, of authority who wish to see this eroded, who are antagonistic to biblical Christianity, Father, we pray that you would restrain their influence and that you would allow those who are in power to be wise and to see the issues and to restrain these, these terrible influences that seek to take away our basic freedoms. Father, we thank you for those who have given their lives in the past the supreme sacrifice to defend this nation and its freedoms that we would not forget that the freedoms that we have have been purchased through the death of tens of thousands of citizens in this country who have given their lives to give us these freedoms. May we treasure them and not lose sight of their significance and importance. Now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, make them clear to us under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since today or this weekend is Memorial Day weekend, I thought I would uh, focus our attention on just one example of how we have preserved these freedoms in this, in this era by reading the account of uh, one individual's citation for receiving the Medal of Honor. This is for Matt Urban. He was a lieutenant colonel. At the time, he was a captain in the 2nd Battalion, 60th Infantry Regiment, 9th Infantry Division in World War II. The place was Renouf, France, on 14 June to 3 September 1944. He entered the service at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, on the 2nd of July, 1941, and he was born on the 25th of August in 1919 in Buffalo, New York says that Matt Urban, then captain, distinguished himself by a series of bold, heroic actions exemplified by singularly outstanding combat leadership, personal bravery, and tenacious devotion to duty during the period 14 June to 3 September 1944 while assigned to the 2nd Battalion, 60th Infantry Regiment, 9th Infantry Division. On 14 June, Captain Urban's country, uh, company, attacking at Renouf, France, encountered heavy enemy small arms and tank fire. The enemy tanks were unmercifully raking his unit's positions and inflicting heavy casualties. Captain Urban, realizing that his company was in imminent danger of being decimated, armed himself with a bazooka. He worked his way with an ammo carrier through hedgerows under a continuing barrage of fire to a point near the tanks. He brazenly exposed himself to the enemy fire, and firing the bazooka, destroyed both tanks. Responding to Captain Urban's action, his company moved forward and routed the enemy. Later that same day, still in the attack near Orglans, Captain Urban was wounded in the leg by direct fire from a 37-millimeter tank gun. He refused evacuation 
and continued to lead his company until they moved into defensive positions for the night. At 0500 hours the next day, still in the the attack near Orglans, Captain Urban, though badly wounded, directed his company in another attack. One hour later, he was again wounded, suffering from two wounds. One serious, he was evacuated to England. In mid-July, while recovering from his wounds, he learned of his unit's severe losses in the hedgerows of Normandy. Realizing his unit's need for battle-tested leaders, he voluntarily left the hospital and hitchhiked his way back to his unit near Saint-Lô, France. Arriving at the 2nd Battalion Command Post at 11.30 hours, 25 July, he found that his unit had jumped off at 1100 hours, that's 30 minutes earlier, at 1100 hours in the first attack of Operation Cobra. Still limping from his leg wound, Captain Urban made his way forward to retake command of his company. He found his company held up by strong enemy opposition. Two supporting tanks had been destroyed, and another intact but with no tank commander or gunner was not moving. He located a lieutenant in charge of the support tanks and directed a plan of attack to eliminate the enemy strong point. The lieutenant and a sergeant were immediately killed by the heavy enemy fire when they tried to mount the tank. Captain Urban, though physically hampered by his leg wound and knowing quick action had to be taken, dashed through the scathing fire and mounted the tank. With enemy bullets ricocheting from the tank, Captain Urban ordered the tank forward and completely exposed to the enemy fire, manned the machine gun and placed devastating fire on the enemy. His action in the face of enemy fire galvanized the battalion into action and they attacked and destroyed the enemy position. On 2 August, Captain Urban was wounded in the chest by shell fragments and disregarding the recommendation of the battalion surgeon again refused evacuation. On 6 August, Captain Urban became the commander of the 2nd Battalion. On 15 August, he was again wounded but remained with his unit. On 3 September, the 2nd Battalion was given the mission of establishing a crossing point on the Meuse River near here, Belgium. The enemy planned to stop the advance of the Allied Army by concentrating heavy forces at the Meuse. The 2nd Battalion attacked toward the crossing point, encountered fierce enemy artillery, small arms, and mortar, mortar fire, which stopped the attack. Captain Urban quickly moved from his command post to the lead position of the battalion. Reorganizing the attacking elements, he personally led a charge toward the enemy's strong point. As the charge moved across the open terrain, Captain Urban was seriously wounded in the neck. Although unable to talk above a whisper from the paralyzing neck wound and in danger of losing his life, he refused to be evacuated until the enemy was routed and his battalion had secured the crossing point on the Meuse River. Captain Urban's personal leadership Limitless bravery and repeated extraordinary exposure to enemy fire served as an inspiration to his entire battalion. His valorous and intrepid actions reflect the utmost credit on him and uphold the noble traditions of the United States. Now, it is through actions of bravery like that that we have our freedoms. Yet I fear that in our nation today we have people who just do not quite understand and appreciate why we have freedom. And as we've studied both in the second hour in our study of John and in our study of freedom in Galatians chapter 5, we realize that the basic underlying reason that we lose freedom is because we don't have the capacity for freedom which is established in the spiritual realm and not in the political or physical realm. That the basic reason that man does not have freedom goes all the way back to what took place in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were created, they had the most incredible freedom that man has ever had. They had true freedom. They were unhindered by a sin nature, and they were placed in the perfect environment of the Garden. It was only when Adam chose to sin, to disobey God by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he fell into sin, came up, inherited and acquired a sin, or he acquired a sin nature, And because he now possessed a sin nature, he was in the bondage to that sin nature, and all of his descendants are born with that same sin nature. We inherit it uh, physically. It's passed on genetically through the cell structure of the human body. 
and at birth, Adam's original sin is imputed to that sin nature, and we are condemned for that. That is the basis for our condemnation in the human race. So we are born in slavery, and until that is dealt with, all attempts at freedom are merely superficial. And until we deal with the sin issue, as Jesus has been pointing out to the Jews in John chapter 6, until they deal with the issue of the spiritual solution, the political solution is merely superficial and temporary. Now, we have also been studying issues related to freedom in Galatians chapter 5, so turn with me now, and we're going to continue our study of freedom, especially as it is related in the spiritual life to the doctrine of unconditional love or impersonal love. While you are turning there, just a reminder, I've got several things up here. They are of the conference they're having over at North Stonington Bible Church on millennial issues. If you haven't made that, uh, I would recommend that. Ron Merriman's giving it. He's done an excellent job putting together a little syllabus of notes and diagrams, and it's very helpful. Good basic information on um, dispensations and prophecy and the difference between the different millennial systems, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation issues, and good introduction to basic vocabulary related to eschatology. Now, if you think about this holistically, what's going on here, obviously the Lord has something for us to learn about eschatology because the game plan is this is going on at North Stonington, which I had nothing to do with. Then in July, June 30th to July 4th, we're having a prophecy conference when Tommy Ice will be here, and you will find that highly educational and informative about what's going on. I don't know of anybody quite as informed today as Tommy is. Uh, Tommy's always been a rather a gadabout. He knows just about everybody, has met just about everybody, been there, done that. Uh, so he's got quite an uh, interesting background. And he'll be here. And then sometime in the fall, probably when we finish James, we're going to shift gears to a study of prophecy, and specifically a study of Daniel. So all of this is working together in the plan of God, it seems, for us to get a handle on what the Bible says about the future. So prepare yourselves. This is a good thing to go to. Galatians 5:13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brethren. That is, in our position in Christ, we have true freedom. That's the only place, really, in this life, in this age, that we can have true freedom. And if John's up there in the sound booth, I would appreciate a little breeze. Thank you, John. For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Why does Paul say that? Because the instant we go on negative signals to doctrine and we yield to the temptation from the sin nature, at that point we're under control of the sin nature. And even though our bondage to the sin nature is broken through the doctrine of positional truth, and retroactive positional truth, which means that at the moment of salvation, we are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What happens is this. Here's the cross. At that moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, is that instant in time you are baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. And the emphasis, the thrust of baptism is identification. That's its significance. And baptism of the Holy Spirit means that the Holy Spirit is used by Jesus Christ to identify us retroactively. That means we're down the timeline, way down here, almost 2,000 years later, and we are then identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we, the, the power of the sin nature is broken, we die positionally to sin, and through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are entered into union with Jesus Christ, and we are in Christ. And that is our eternal position and our eternal relationship. And along with that, we get 39-plus spiritual, unconditional, positional realities that God gives us at the moment of our salvation, 39 are 
irrevocable. That means that we cannot lose them. There's nothing we can do to lose them. They are ours forever. One is revocable, and that is the filling of the Holy Spirit, which has to do with the believer's walk, spiritual walk in time. The bottom circle represents our relationship with God in time. The moment we are saved, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, as well as six other salvation ministries of the Holy Spirit. But the moment we choose to sin, we lose our fellowship with God the Father. We are out of fellowship in what the Bible calls carnality in the old King James, or fleshly in the New American Standard. And we are under the control of the sin nature. And the only way to recover is through the use of 1 John 1.9. And at that instant, we are restored to fellowship and we recover the filling of God the Holy Spirit. But if we are going to have freedom, it is ours positionally in Christ and, and we experience it in time when we are living in the bottom circle under the control of God the Holy Spirit. Because the instant we start operating on the sin nature, we are outside the bottom circle and under the power of the flesh, and even though we are positionally free from the sin nature, we are operationally placing ourselves freely under the dominion of the sin nature. Now, that's a new way to think about what you do when you're sin. You're saying, in effect, sin nature, I want you to control my life. And the result of that we've seen from James chapter 1, starting in verse 12, is that that produces temporal or carnal death. Now, the solution to this, the alternative to this, rather, is to utilize the problem-solving device that we have studied of impersonal love for all mankind. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but contrast, through love, serve one another. Now, we have gone through these passages on love before, and we're going to expand our ideas on love, but here we get the idea of serving one another as an integral aspect of love. Now, love is one of those concepts that we all have a difficulty understanding. I think each time I've gone through this now, I think this is about the fourth or fifth time we've covered uh, love in one way or another since I've been here in the last 13 months or so. And each time I get through it, I dig out a little more, and I come to understand this a little more. But I don't think any of us really gets a full handle on this till we hit the apex of spiritual growth. It is one of the most difficult doctrines for us to apply because it is completely contrary to our sin nature. The thrust of the sin nature is to serve and emphasize self and personal needs and personal wants and desires, whereas the concept of love, especially in service, puts the other person first. It runs completely contrary to our natural inclinations, and therefore it is the result of a lot of spiritual growth. It doesn't just happen. That's not to say you can't apply this in a small way as a baby believer. You can, but you're not going to master this until you get some doctrine in your soul and get a lot of practice in using this technique over the years. So we're called to love through love, to serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is a quote from Leviticus 19.18. And so we stopped here last time, and we took some time to review what the Scriptures teach about love. We saw that love is, as I've been teaching it, there are ten Stress busters in the spiritual life. The first five are the basic stress busters exemplified by the word faith because the faith rest drill is the third one. You have uh, confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. And those are fundamental to the baby believer growing. Then the middle one, the sixth one, is the personal sense of our eternal destiny when we move from spiritual infancy through spiritual adolescence and begin to focus on eternity so that we realize that everything we're doing now affects our eternal position in the kingdom, in 
our, in, our, in the body of Christ in eternity in terms of rewards, position, inheritance, when we will be ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ, and we will be judging the angels. And this is exemplified by the one word, hope, which is elpis in the Greek, which refers to our confident expectation, because we are confident in where we are going, confident in our destiny in heaven. It impacts how we make decisions today, and we begin to put our priority more and more on Bible doctrine and our spiritual life. And then the next three of these stress busters involve love. There's personal love for God, there is impersonal love for all mankind, and there is occupation with Christ. The culminating stress buster is inner happiness, sharing the happiness of the Lord. Now, this I call the love triplex because they work together and there's an integral relationship with them, and they are grounded upon personal love for God because for love to have any value... It must be based on integrity. It must be based on virtue. Love is virtue dependent. Too often in our culture, when we think of love, we think of it emotionally or sentimentally. We look at someone, we say, I love you, and the reason we say that is because we find something in that person that is attractive, something that we enjoy, someone we enjoy being around, and as long as that factor is there, then the love is there. But as soon as something changes, then that love is no longer there. Whereas personal love for God is, is different because when we say, I love you, and we're focused on God, God never changes. And the only way we can say that to God is if we have some doctrine in our soul because we have to know God before we can love God. And as we grow to love God because God is immutable and God never changes, then that provides a stability to our love because our love is based on an object that never shifts never changes. So on the basis of that we, and the doctrine in our soul, we develop virtue. And on the basis of our love for God, then, this motivates us and provides the motivation for us, then, to love others. That's why Jesus divided the commandments and summarized them into two commands. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, love others as yourself. He puts the love for God first because that provides the virtue and the motivation for loving others. So last time we summarized this and we looked at the passage in Matthew chapter 22, 35 to 40, when Jesus summarized that and summarized the law. And we saw that this was based in, in part on De Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, what is it that demonstrates our love for God? If we go back through the Old Testament and we look specifically at Deuteronomy, we see that love for God is exemplified by obedience. Obedience then, obedience to the mandates of God in the Scripture, then becomes the barometer of how you can determine how much you really love God. Now, people can walk around all the time, and people do, and they talk about how they love Jesus, and they sing songs about loving God, and they, they just talk about love for God all the time. But do they really love God? How do you know? It's measured not by emotion, not by liver quiver. It's measured by obedience to God, not by how warm you feel, how good you feel when you leave church on Sunday morning. It's measured by how consistently you obey the mandates of Scripture and that begins with the mandates to study the Word of God and to let that radically change the way you think. So love in the Old Testament is measured by obedience, but it doesn't stop there. The same thing is true in the New Testament. Jesus said in John 14:15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14:21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 14:23. Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So that's talking about fellowship with God, increasing fellowship with God, and again, in both the Old and New Testament, it's based on obedience. Now, in order to obey the word, you have to know the word. 
And in order to know the Word, you have to make that a priority in your life. You have to have the discipline in order to be at church, to be at Bible class, week in, week out, Sundays, Wednesdays, so that you can learn it and have it drilled into you and inculcated into you so that it becomes standard operating thinking procedure in your soul. Now, we saw last time as we wrapped up on um, our study of the personal love for God, we began to shift. We had about nine points on the personal love for God. And then we came down to point ten where we began to focus on the whole aspect of impersonal love and unconditional love. So point number ten from last week was from Matthew 22:39. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as I've already stated, this is a quote from Leviticus 19.18. And it's one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. It's quoted in Matthew 19.19, Matthew 22.39, Mark 12.31, Luke 10.27, Romans 13.9, our passage Galatians 5.14, and in James 2.8. In James chapter 2, James renames this the royal law. Now, the reason he names it the royal law is for two reasons. Number one, it was exemplified by Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Two, it is to be the unique characteristic of believers in this age, marking them them out as royal priests. Every believer in this age is a royal priest to God, and this is to exemplify our life. In John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, I have said that as we build this doctrine, we need to look at how it has been revealed to us over time, incrementally. God does not reveal everything there is to know about a particular doctrine at one point in time. The term is progressive revelation. That means that as God reveals himself to man, he does it incrementally. Noah did not know as much as Abraham. Abraham did not know as much as Moses. Moses did not know as much as David. And none of the Old Testament writers knew as much as the Apostle Paul. God reveals himself progressively through time. And each time we trace a doctrine progressively through Scripture, we can see how God refines and shapes that doctrine so that it comes into sharper focus in our thinking. And I believe it is helpful to go back and to see how this takes place. One thing we need to remember that in as, as a principle of a dispensational understanding of Scripture, we realize that God's administration of human history changed radically at the cross. There are other dispensations, but for right now we're just going to focus on the fact that there was a pre-cross dispensation, which we call generally the age of Israel, and I subdivide this into two periods. One, the dispensation of the patriarchs and the other the dispensation of the law. The cross ended the age of Israel 40 days later, or 50 days after the cross, rather, at the day of Pentecost. God the Holy Spirit descended, and that marked the beginning of the church age. The church age is an age where no prophecy is fulfilled. The next item on the prophetic agenda is when Jesus Christ comes back at the rapture, or the resurrection of the church, when all church-age believers, living and dead, are taken to be with the Lord in the air, and then, just after that, the tribulation will become. Actually, the tribulation begins with the signing of a peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. Now, one of the things we learn in dispensations is that when, when when a dispensation changes, God changes the rules. Not drastically, there's always some rules that continue and some that are discontinued. The term dispensation comes from the Greek word oikonomos, 
which is the word from which we get our English word economy. You can see how it was just brought over from Greek into English. It sounds very similar. Oikonomos, economy. And it means a house law. So God has different rules in which he administers human history from age to age. Now, some things continue and some things are discontinued. And the general principle is that if in, unless something is restated, it is no longer in force. Now, what we have here with regard to this particular passage is that Leviticus 19.18 states the principle. Jesus covers the principle in, excuse me, in Luke 6 here in relationship to the millennial kingdom. And then Romans, Galatians, and James all reiterate this principle of impersonal love for all mankind as far as the church age is concerned. Now, when a, when a principle is stated that often, we know that this is a principle that continues throughout all of human history. And so whatever is said about it in any passage is going to give us clues that are applicable today for understanding how we as believers put this into practice. So let's begin by going back to Leviticus 19.18 and seeing how this was first set up for Israel in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.18. There we read, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Now, I want you to notice that the mandate, the positive mandate, to love your neighbor as yourself, and incidentally, the Greek word there for neighbor tells us that this refers to any person in our periphery, not just the person who lives next door or across the street, but any person who comes into our periphery, whether we know them or not, whether we uh, like that person or not, whether they're attractive to us or not. And as I stated, we may not even know them. We may have no clue who that person is, but we are to treat them in kindness. We're to treat them as we would want to be treated, and we're to, to apply this principle to them no matter who they are, but we don't know them. That's why we call it impersonal love. We don't know the person. Some people have a little trouble with that, that uh, term, but that's the thrust of it. Personal love means we have a relationship with that person. We know the person. Impersonal love means we don't know the person. They could be somebody driving down the highway, and we're going to show courtesy to them and treat them in kindness and, and treat them in grace. So that's why grace and humility are issues, doctrines, in the spiritual life that undergird our impersonal love for all mankind. Now, the contrast here is, is negative. It's a contrast with mental attitude sins, and it really starts in verse 17. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge. So it's an absence of vindictiveness, an absence of... of uh, Malice, an absence of hate, an absence of emotional sins, an absence of the mental attitude sins that are so destructive to the sin nature. So one of the first things we observe here is that the mandate in Leviticus is defined negatively as the absence of the sin nature, or excuse me, absence of mental attitude sins dominating the thinking of the soul. And it's treating the person more with, with courtesy and kindness. Now, there's a level here that, that we're going to see in the New Testament that is just missed in the Old Testament. It doesn't seem to come to the level of expectation that we see in Luke 6 and later on in the epistles. Let's back up a little bit, a little bit so we can get the, the full context here. Go back to verse, let's go back to verse 9. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, remember, this is written to an agricultural people. They, nearly everybody has a farm, and they work out on the farm, farm. So this is talking about their basic personal economy, how they handle their personal finances. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. In other words, don't pinch your pennies. Be gracious to, towards those who are poor and do not have anything. That's why you didn't 
till the, or, or harvest the whole field. You left something there so the poor could come along and they could pull something out to take care of themselves. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So this is God's divine plan for a welfare system. You're always going to have the poor. Jesus said the poor will be with you always. And this is a system. It is, notice, it's a personal system of taking care of those who are without. It is not a government system. It is not a bureaucracy set up in order to take care of the system. Now, there is a bureaucratic framework for this under the second tithe, which was taken up uh, in order to, and remember that was national, and that was also used to take care of the widows and the orphans. But here you have that it is a personal uh, issue where you people were to leave a certain amount in the fields to take care of the, the poor. So that's one illustration of impersonal love. A second is in verse 11. You shall not steal. In other words, a recognition of private ownership of property, a protection of property. You shall not steal nor deal falsely. That is, you're going to be honest. You're going to have integrity in your dealings. You're not going to lie to one another. All this is part of impersonal love. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. This is treating God's name lightly and swearing by his name and then telling a lie. This would be comparable to perjury in a court of law. Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. In other words, don't go out trying to take advantage of other people and see how you can screw them out of all their money. That's the, the thrust here. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. In other words, pay him at the end of the day. Don't keep the money for yourself just to earn a little more interest. Generosity with other people, which is a, an aspect of grace orientation. Furthermore, you're going to have a certain amount of respect for all men, even those who have physical deformities. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall revere your God. Notice the connection between respecting God and respecting man generally. Why? Because man is made in the image of God, even if he's physically deformed, even though he's a sinner, and that image of God is somewhat marred. We are to treat all men with a certain level of respect, believer or unbeliever, whether they are good or bad, because they are created in the image of God. It's a respect for, for a personal life, for human life, and a respect for each individual and their, their position as an image bearer of God. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. And then the absence of sins of the tongues and mental attitude sin, verse 16, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, no gossip, no maligning, no running down people. And you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Personal protection of life. Now, in summary, what we see here is that love is defined in this context as an absence of mental attitude sins and an absence of sin, of, of what we might call discourtesy and an absence of taking from other people what is rightfully theirs, respecting privacy, personal property, and truth. So it's respecting the poor because they are in the image of God, and so you leave something for the deserving poor. Uh, you respect privacy, personal property, and truth in verse 11. There's a prohibition to perjury in verse 12. There's a reject, it rejects oppression of others and unjust wages. There is an element of respect for all men, even those disfigured or with physical deformities, slander, gossip, sins of the tongue, uh, uh, malice, uh, jealousy, bitterness, envy, hatred, all of those are prescribed, as well as murder. Now, love at that point in Leviticus 19.18 is pretty simple, the way it's defined. In other words, in the Old Testament, when they did not have the filling of God the Holy Spirit, this was the best they could do, and God knew that. 
because they didn't have the dynamics of God the Holy Spirit filling their life. They didn't have the complete canon of Scripture. They're limited as far as they can go. So so if we were to define impersonal love in terms of the Old Testament context, it's pretty much defined negatively in terms of an absence of mental attitude sins, an absence of sins of the tongue, and a positive aspect of treating people with respect, courtesy, and politeness with a certain element of generosity toward them. Now notice how it changes when we get into the New Testament. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Now this passage is Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, which is given in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Now this primarily focuses, I think, upon how things will be in the millennial kingdom. This is kingdom standards. And the reason for this is when Jesus came at the beginning of, I believe, this dispensation, the law age of Israel ends with the incarnation. Galatians 4.4, and I've recently come to understand this, Galatians 4.4 says, In the fullness of time, Here's the key phrase here. In the fullness of time. Now, Paul uses that same phrase to refer as a title for the millennial kingdom. So we know that it is a dispensationally pregnant term. The age of Israel continues until something dynamic happens. I've already said that a dispensation is understood as a as a part of God's administration of human history. And when God administers history, there's always certain elements. Whenever He's going to change that, there's going to be new revelation, and there are going to be new requirements or a modification of those requirements. The principle for salvation is the same in every age. Faith alone and Christ alone. But in the Old Testament, it was an anticipated Christ, and the Probably in the age of the Gentiles before Abraham, it was just a, a more of a vague promise of a solution to the sin problem based on Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 16, 15 and 16. Then, uh, but at this age, you, there's a shift because now in terms of the requirement, you have the personal presence of the Messiah who is announcing a kingdom. He is preceded by John the Baptist, and John's message is to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there is new revelation. There is new revelation in that the kingdom is at hand. But what happens? Halfway through Jesus' ministry, it becomes clear that both the leadership in Jerusalem, as we're seeing in our study of John, and the people reject Jesus' offer of the Messianic kingdom. So at that point, Jesus shifts gears and he begins to teach directly to the disciples to prepare them for the church age because now that he has been rejected, the kingdom is going to be postponed. It it never started. It was not inaugurated. When Galatians 4.4, the fullness of time, Christ came. That's the incarnation. So you have a dispensational shift that involves approximately 33 years between the birth of Christ and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, this is what I call a hinge dispensation. It's it's the unique dispensation, I believe, because it fulfills everything from Israel on. It fulfills the law, but it also sets the precedent for what comes in the future. For Jesus Christ in His spiritual life, is the first one to live a spiritual life based on the indwelling and filling of God the Holy Spirit. And so that's going to set the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. Now, in Matthew 5 and 5 through 7 and in Luke 6, this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus is announcing what the standard procedures and policies will be in the millennial kingdom, in the messianic age. And even though that is its direct interpretation, 
it has application for today because it helps us to understand in the church age what it means to love others as ourselves. So let's begin at Luke 6:27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Now what has just happened? What has just happened is we've upped the ante. Instead of love being defined in terms of an absence of mental attitude sins and courtesy and politeness to other people, there is now an element of, of, uh, of action here. You're, instead of just being generally a passive sense of avoiding mental attitude sins, you're now going to be involved in taking some initiative and doing something positive toward the object. They are antagonistic to you and hostile to you. But I say to those, to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Notice how it's defined. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. In other, in other words, there is an action of positive initiation towards the person who is intent on doing you harm, the person who is antagonistic to you, and the person who rejects you. Now, you can't do that on your own. None of us can. That cannot be emulated by the flesh. It can only be a product of the Holy Spirit. And we will see that this is one of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is first love. It cannot happen on your own. It will only happen as you take in the Word of God and advance spiritually. Only then are you going to be able to put this into practice. Then we get another example. And this is personal. This is not corporate. This is not national. This is, everybody takes these things out of, completely out of uh, context. And remember, Jesus often teaches somewhat hyperbolically and metaphorically. Whoever hits you on the cheek Offer him the other also. Now, this is not meaning that you do not defend yourself if somebody comes up and hits you. He's not talking literally here. He is talking about the fact that if someone is hostile to you, then you have to be in that position. You're going to be somewhat vulnerable. Now, immediately people say, well, I I just can't understand why God would expect us to be that way. Okay, let's go back to an example. God the Father sends His Son, Jesus Christ, to earth. He takes on true humanity. He comes to a planet that is in open rebellion against Him and hostile to Him in every way possible. He comes to His own people. What did John say in John chapter 1? John chapter 1. He was in the world... John 1.10, He was in the world and the world was made through Him and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, His own people, Israel. And those who were His own did not receive Him. He was rejected. He was reviled. This is the whole point of John 3.16. God demonstrated, for God so loved the world that He gave His unique Son. God makes Himself, and Jesus Christ, God the Son, makes Himself vulnerable at that point to the point that He is going to be completely taken advantage of, mistreated to the point of physical death on the cross. That is the ultimate model of what impersonal love is all about. That's why this subject is so hard for people to understand and teach, and people want to fudge around the corners of this simply because it is impossible for us to fulfill this unless we have spiritual maturity. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. It's marked by a... He even steps up what he means by generosity. In in, in Leviticus, generosity is exhibited by just leaving extra stuff in the field so that the poor can come by and they can glean it for themselves. Here, if he, wants your, if he wants your coat, give him your shirt too. In other words, give him more than he needs. Be generous, even with a person who is antagonistic to you. Luke 
Now, how does this solve problems? That just occurred to me. Let's put some flesh on this. This solves problems because we're always trying to, to do what's best for us. And as soon as we get past the point of being so self-serving and arrogant, we're not going to get so frustrated with people and so angry because anger is always a sign that we're not getting our way. And when, we're getting, when our desires are being blocked, then we start getting mad at people. And, that's where, and all of a sudden now we're converting that outside adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul. But when we're, our personal desires are no longer the issue because we realize that that's going to be taken care of by the Lord, that frees us to where we can be vulnerable to people and we can truly love people and do what's best for them in spite of what, that may, what negative consequences that may bring to us because we know that the issue is the Lord who is protecting us. That's why it's a problem-solving device. We treat people with impersonal love, and we're not caught up and wrapped around the axle on how it's going to protect us and take care of us. That's where the stress comes in, and that's where we start fragmenting in our soul. Luke 6.30, Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Now, this is just hard to do. But see, the dynamic in the millennial kingdom is still the dynamic of the church age, and that is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because in the, in the millennial age, according to Joel 2 and according to passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel that describe the millennial kingdom, the Holy Spirit is going to be indwelling every believer in the millennial kingdom. And all of this is just as much a fruit of the Spirit then as it is now. That's why we can say that even though there are dispensational distinctives, there is also a dispensational continuity between these concepts. So we can't just say, well, this is Luke 6, it's a Sermon on the Mount, it has to do with the millennium, so it doesn't have anything to do with us, because when we get into Romans and we get into Galatians and we get into James, what we discover is that what Jesus is saying in Luke 6 isn't any different from what Paul is saying in Romans and Galatians and what James is saying in James 2. They just don't go into quite the detail. But I like looking at Luke 6 because when Jesus fleshes it out, we don't really have anywhere to hide. The Lord leaves it that way sometimes. Luke 6:32. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Peter says the same thing. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. In other words, the unbeliever operating on the flesh can have a tremendous amount of love towards people who are kind to him. What value is that? How can you say that has anything to do with the spiritual life? Any, anything that the unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. That's a crucial principle to understand. See, that's why when we start talking about impersonal love and what Jesus is saying here, it's so hard because we know we can't do it. And we always want to soften it and dilute it somehow or, or escape it. But Jesus' point is the whole issue in the spiritual life is it is unique. It's uniquely the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it moves beyond anything you can do in your own natural power in the flesh. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even unbelievers can do the same thing. If you lend those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even unbelievers lend to other unbelievers in order to receive the same amount back. But, contrast, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. How is He kind to ungrateful and evil men? Well, that phrase, ungrateful and evil men, summarizes every single believer at the moment they enter into, I mean, every single person, the moment they enter into physical life. Because we're sinners and we are at enmity with God. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were not, Christ did not die for us because we became wonderful believers. Christ died for us because we were rotten sinners. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Now, in order to do this, we have to have what? Let's go back here to this diagram where we're just laying out the 
problem-solving devices. First of all, you've got to have some faith rest drill operating. You've got to be trusting God. Faith rest drill is the glue that holds the whole fortress together. You've got to master this. Secondly, you have to master grace orientation because you have to understand that everything that you have is a result of the grace of God. Every molecule you breathe, every mouthful you take, every dollar you have in the bank account, every day when you go to work, you have that job, you have that money, you have that paycheck because of the grace of God. That's all part of His logistical grace. And if God can give it to you and somebody can take it from you, then God can give it back to you. So you have to understand the principle of grace that everything you have is not because of you're so great and you've worked so hard. You have to develop grace orientation, and part of grace orientation is humility. And that involves orientation to the plan of God and involves teachability. So what happens here is we have the faith rest drill mastered, we have grace orientation mastered, and then we have doctrinal orientation mastered. Because we have learned this doctrine. We've studied the doctrine of, of love and we have all this. So there's doctrinal understanding and then it moves into a, uh, the personal sense of our eternal destiny because the issue now is we're focusing on what's going to happen in eternity in terms of our reward. So we're focused on our eternal destiny here and not on what's happening in time because time is merely a drop in the bucket. Love your enemies and do good. Lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. So this is talking about a believer. He's exercising impersonal love for all mankind. He's moved through these childhood stress busters. He's moved through adolescence and mastered a personal sense of eternal destiny. And now he's operating at a level of spiritual adulthood here, an impersonal love for all mankind. And he realizes the issue is not what's happening now, but the future. And so because he is focused on that, he will have rewards and inheritance. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Now, this term, sons of the Most High, is not talking about becoming a believer, being a son, son of God as in John 1.12, but as many as received him to them, he gave the power to be called the sons of God. Sons of the Most High here is a technical title for the mature, the spiritually mature believer in eternity. Not too many people will be called sons of the Most High. This is a special title, just like in the Old Testament, Abraham was called a friend of God. Not too many people reach the status of spiritual maturity where they have a close enough relationship with God to be called a friend of God. The same thing is true in heaven. Although every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be in heaven and is going to have an eternal place in heaven, not every believer is going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Not every believer will have a reward. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, at the judgment seat of Christ, we're told that believers who are failures in living the spiritual life will lose their rewards. They will still be in heaven, but they will not have an inheritance. They will not have rewards. And this is for the believer who has advanced to spiritual adulthood and exhibited a high degree of impersonal love for all mankind, and we're promised that he will have a great reward and have a unique title, a son of the Most High. Now look at the analogy here. If we go back, let's look back a minute. Okay, let's look at verse 636. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. See, this is the standard. The standard is God's impersonal love for all mankind. His mercy, which is grace in action. This is the standard that we have. We are to be merciful just as the Father is merciful. How was He merciful? Well, we've seen John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. He gave His Son who went to the cross to die as a substitute for us. Now, John 13, as we've read already, further ups the ante. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now, what's the standard? You love one another how? Even as I have loved you. So when we are to love one another, 
and that specifically has in mind other believers, who's the model? Who's the role model? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to love other believers in the same way that God loves other believers. Now, often we sit back and we think, well, I'm glad God loves that person because I don't know anybody else who will. And we all know believers like that. We all know other believers, and we don't get along with them personally. There's something about their personality. Maybe their incarnality. Maybe they're just a real rotten person to be around. Maybe they're miserable to be around. And yet, look at how the Lord Jesus Christ always treats us. And you may think you're just the cat's meow, and you're just the greatest thing that's come along, but the Lord looks at your sin nature and my sin nature, and we're not. But He loves us in spite of that. And we're pretty rotten sometimes, spiritually, and in our relationship with the Lord. And He deals with us in grace. And that's the standard. That's the model. He is always initiating toward us. Jesus said in John fifteen thirteen, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So that brings us to understanding God's impersonal love for mankind. You see, when we say that God loves us, or we make this statement, I love you, it's personal love when, when there is affinity between the subject, the I is the subject, the one loving, the you is the object, the one who is being loved. When there is personal affinity between the subject and the object, then that is personal love. But in this case, God is perfect righteousness. And you and I lack perfect righteousness. We are sinners. And what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God rejects. I mean, what the righteousness of God uh, condemns, or re- condemns, the justice of God rejects, so that God cannot have personal love for fallen creatures because there's no affinity between our negative righteousness and his personal righteousness. So he has to love us with impersonal love or unconditional love that is based totally and exclusively on his character. And his character is absolute righteousness, perfect virtue. So that his love for you is based not on anything you do, not on who you are, not on your wonderful personality, not on your bargains with God. It's not based on your going to church, not based on any actions you take. It's based exclusively on His character and on the work of Jesus Christ. So it's based on who God is and what Jesus did. Now, what are the characteristics of that impersonal love? See, it's expressed most clearly at salvation. Remember, God is, uh, man is hostile to God. The Scripture says he is at enmity with God. He is continually rejecting God. He is obnoxious, odious, antagonistic, rebellious, hateful, resentful, and he is continuously taking advantage of every provision that God gives him. And those are only the good believers. I just want to make sure everybody was awake. It's getting warm in here and people are beginning to doze. You shouldn't eat that big breakfast in the morning. Now, what are the attributes of God's love for us? Well, first of all, from eternity past, God made a plan to solve the problem. So we see that His love is initiating. It took the initiative. It didn't wait for man to do something. It didn't wait for man to give some kind of indication that he wanted to be saved. God took the initiative in eternity past before He ever created anyone to provide a plan, a perfect plan, to solve the sin problem. God's love took charge of the situation to provide the perfect solution necessary to restore the relationship that was broken by God's, excuse me, by Adam's original sin. God's initiating love took place billions and billions of years ago and eternity passed through antecedent grace. Antecedent means prior to and refers to the acts of God's unmerited favor which preceded the creation of the universe, the creation of man, and the fall of man. So it's initiating. It takes the initiative. 
second characteristic we see is that it's aggressive. God's impersonal love is aggressive. It's not passive. It asserts itself with confidence and boldness. It does not operate from a position of weakness that is trying to curry favor or generate approbation in man. Because of his omniscience, God knows the entire problem. Nobody can pull the wool over his eyes, and he has complete understanding of everything necessary to resolve the problem. He knows the problem through and through, and he knows each of us intimately, and he knows all of the sin that we've ever committed and that we ever will commit. He knows just how bad we really are. But he takes the the, the initiative, and he is aggressive in solving the problem. All through the Old Testament, we see God's continually exercising the initiative with man. He is continually aggressive in providing the solution. Third, there is humility. God does not seek, especially as exemplified in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He did not seek his own personal glory but he took on the attitude of a servant in order to do whatever was necessary, which included the incarnation, limiting his attributes in time or willingly or voluntarily restricting the independent use of his eternal attributes while he was incarnate, sacrifice, and the undeserved imputation of human sin. So Jesus Christ did what was necessary. He became a man. He restricted his divine attributes in time. He was willing to be a sacrifice and to receive in his body on the cross the imputation of every single sin in human history. The violence that occurred to Jesus Christ spiritually on the cross is more than you or I could ever possibly imagine. And he was willing to take that pain, a pain that is more intense, more excruciating, and more agonizing than any suffering, pain, or torment you can ever imagine. Now, this is just the beginning of understanding what impersonal love is all about. Now, to give you a clue as to where you can go with this, is this is what's supposed to characterize the love of a husband for a wife. That's how this gets very practical and really cuts home. It's to characterize... Every relationship that every believer has. Wives, you don't get off scot-free. Just because God singled out the husband to make sure he would love his wife, there's a reason for that. It doesn't exclude the wife from exercising impersonal love towards the husband because, remember, we are to love one another. That includes husbands and wives. But we're going to continue this next week. We're going to finish looking at the characteristics of God's impersonal love And then we're going to come back and look at Galatians 5 and see how this relates to how we are to live. This is not easy. Nobody will be here next week. (laughs) With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to realize that the spiritual life is not just difficult, it's impossible, that these factors can only be in our lives as a result of the production of God the Holy Spirit who you have given us to indwell us and to fill us and to teach us. And, Father, as we grow to spiritual maturity, we pray that we can see clearly how to apply these things and that we would not balk at the challenge, but that we would realize that your grace has provided everything for us in abundance. At the moment of salvation, everything was given to us, and all we have to do is learn your word and let God the Holy Spirit work it out in our lives. And over time, we will see this spiritual growth take place as we advance to spiritual maturity. The issue for us is what's our priority? Is our priority the physical demands of day-to-day life? Or have we shifted to make our priority our spiritual life and our relationship with you with an eye on our eternal destiny? Now, Father, we pray that we would continue to remember and reflect upon these things in this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.